Uh, the first reading can be found on page 668. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah of Berechai, the son of Ido. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, to me declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. The second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. It can be paid, uh, found on page 740. It's Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. And we find Jesus uh, talking to a large crowd. So Luke chapter 15, 1 to, 10, uh, 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mike. Uh, welcome. Let me add my welcome to you. If you're new, visiting, just passing through, it's great to have you amongst us. We, uh, as was said earlier on, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Zechariah. Uh, so I'd encourage you to flick back from that Luke reading back to Zechariah. It's, um, it's perhaps a book that's less familiar to us. It's not uh, classically reading that people do on their own when they're at home. I'll flick through the book of Zechariah. Uh, if you have glanced over it before, you might know that uh, the circumstances are a bit foreign and strange. Uh, you might know as well that some of the imagery in there is even stranger. The book of Revelation, if you're more familiar with that, basically has ripped off a lot of Zechariah uh, and copied his pattern. Uh, we're going to spend the next uh, eight weeks looking at it. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to start looking at it and reading it at home. Uh, if you'd like you know, some readings and questions sent out to you, please just put it on the response slip that you're interested in that and I'll make sure you, uh, they get sent to you. 
Uh, but let me give you a little incentive. If you're thinking it's a bit strange, uh, a bit of incentive to read this book is uh, all God's word is, is great at giving us self-understanding and uh, as well understanding him uh, better. Uh, Zechariah, apart from the Psalms, is the most quoted book in the, of the Old Testament in the New. And uh, it points to a theme, it points to a reality of a greater kingdom yet to come. So if you're a little dissatisfied with the circumstances of this world or if you're a little overly comfortable... Uh, Zechariah is a great book to helpfully challenge us to look to a greater kingdom. Uh, So let's pray. Uh, Hopefully you've had enough time you've found Zechariah again. And let's look. Lord and Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you for uh, its power. And we thank you that uh, even across the ages, by your spirit, your word still speaks to us. Father, we ask that you would be speaking to us clearly today. Uh, Help us to understand better uh, our own state and help us to understand even better your character and actions that we might change to live lives that please and honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you can't make, uh, or if people can't make an invitation you give them, one of the the nicer refusals they give you is the, oh, I can't be there but but I'll be there in spirit. You know, it's a nice one. It's a nice way of saying, you know, I still value you, I still value you as a person, I really like your event, but, you know, I just can't be there. But I'll be there in spirit. And it's nice as well because I suppose we know the sadness of the flip side. You know, those who are physically present but in spirit are a long way away. You know, the trivial end, you know, you have that party and there's the person who comes and dampens it. You know, the one who clearly has somewhere better that they'd rather be, but unfortunately made the error of RSVP to your event first. And so they just kind of sit in the corner looking at their watch, wondering when they can kind of escape and go, yeah, but, I mean, they're a pain, but you can't avoid them if you stick to the other side of the room. More seriously, of course, is the, is the damage done by those who are physically present but spiritually absent in relationships that really matter. Now, we're approaching Anzac Day. Uh, I'm reminded of the way so many Australian households have been shaped over generations by war. Uh, Harry Dadswell uh, returned to rural Victoria after World War I and he said this, we were back in the community, a part of it and yet a part. There was a gap we couldn't forget and the others couldn't bridge and so we remained returned soldiers. You know, that, that physical presence and yet... Uh, spiritual, uh, emotional distance was part of the pattern of Australian life last century. And, and if you've got the privilege of meeting um, you know, some of the Sudanese refugees in our city, uh, there's that kind of scarring that still exists. You know, perhaps more damaging to us is that, that, that being overstretched in our commitments. Uh, so that leaves us kind of physically present, but, you know, emotionally, spiritually, everywhere else. Uh, I read a library book to my kids recently about uh, a little girl, and uh, she's concerned for a little lost red teddy bear. Uh, but the undercurrent of the book was about a mum and a little girl living together with no one else, no, no dad, no siblings. And mum was always too busy working, even at home, to actually listen to her daughter. Now, physically in the right place, but absent in spirit. And Zechariah flags for us this morning the prospect that this might be us with God. Or beware if it is. You know, physically in the right place, but, but spiritually a long way off. So Judah, uh, the first hearers over two and a half thousand years ago, they are physically in the right place, but not spiritually. 
And so as we look at Zechariah and the opening of it this morning, I want you to keep asking yourself, where am I spiritually? Uh, The scene is set for us in in 1 verse 1, uh, but perhaps the eighth month of the second year of Darius doesn't give it away to us completely. Um, Zechariah is preaching in in Darius' reign. Uh, That is, he's preaching to a people who, for the last 70 years, have been political exiles over in Babylon and they've just returned home. Uh, It's 520 BC. Uh, Persia dominates the world. Um, We can see on a map. It's a huge empire. Yeah, it's, uh, it's massive. It goes from Greece to India, from uh, Armenia down to Egypt. And Judah is just this tiny little sub-province. On the next slide you can see an arrow's pointing, but yeah, they're insignificant. It's like 55 k's by 64 k's of land. There's 50,000 people, half what were there 70 years uh, before, before the exile. It's tiny. Uh, you know, the, the Persians have taken over. They, they create a loyalty by sending people back home. God has orchestrated all of Middle Eastern politics to get these people physically right in the, in the, back in the right spot. So he promised through Isaiah, Cyrus, the, the Persian would come, see them as he would be a saviour who would see them get home. And yet, verse 2 and 3, what are they told? Return to me, declares the Lord. I'll return to you. You can do the hand actions if it makes it more memorable. Yeah, they are in the right place, but not all is right. You know, financially, they, they struggled as an agricultural society with no trading clout. Um, socially, you can imagine the tensions that would be there, you know, those who have for the last 70 years been in, you know, yes, exile, but kind of comfortable exile in Babylon compared to those who toughed it out back at home in Jerusalem in devastation. Uh, politically, under Persia, they had some more autonomy, but the Samaritans just to the north of them... Uh, they were, they'd been governing them before and, and they weren't happy about letting power go. Just kind of see the way Kevin Rudd's trying to you know, take some power away from the state government to see how enthusiastic powers are to let power, you know, their authority slide. Yeah, yes, they are in the right place, but all is not well. The return is not what they imagined. They are not the envy of the other nations. They're, they're, where's the glory of being God's people? Where's their place in the sun? And the solution the Lord gives is not financial, And it's not social and it's not political, but it's spiritual. A call to wholeheartedly return to him. And it's a lesson they have to have learned from the previous generations. Previous people who'd been in the land, physically enjoyed the right place, but were distant from God. And so they learned the very hard lesson that if you don't return, God will judge. And things will be worse. See, before that exile, Israel had been in the right place. They had been a land of physical blessing. Uh, But they angered God because spiritually they were characterised in verse 4 by evil ways and evil practices. Rather than loving God with all they had as they should have, uh, they adopted the evil practice of idolatry. Uh, Rather than loving their neighbours with the the kind of love you normally reserve for yourself in the way they should have, they adopt the evil ways of hypocrisy. Idolatry and hypocrisy, that's kind of the pattern of God's people in the land before this exile. And they were warned, verse 4, but they refused to listen to God. And the lesson for, for Judah, these people who've just returned physically, and the lesson for us is that those fathers fell, but the word of the Lord stood. That is, when he speaks, it happens, and our defiance won't last. And so Zechariah asks a rhetorical question in verse 5, uh, where are those forefathers now? The answer is they're gone. 
In verse 6, God's word overtook Judah's forefathers. Uh, Quite literally, it's the sense that uh, God's word hunted them down. It did not let them escape. Now, the description of God throughout this section, uh, you may have noticed, is Lord Almighty. You know, three times in verse 3, Lord Almighty. Uh, Again in verse 4 and verse 6. The sense of Almighty there is, is the idea of a great military leader, a general. Now, Zechariah wants to make very clear the serious reality of God's power to judge and that he cannot be defied. It is not enough to be in the right place to enjoy what God has given and keep him at a spiritual distance, keep ignoring what he has to say, keep putting limits on what he can say to you. And Judah's forefathers, uh, they eventually learnt that in verse 6. They did repent, but it was only after the judgment came. It's kind of, you know, like a, uh, the child who uh, learns to not tease her sister after they've suffered, suffered the punishment of the parents. You know, they, they eventually repent, um, but sometimes judgment comes first. Now, in the time of exile, that's what Israel learnt. They were cast out physically. They, they suffered devastation. They suffered loss of life, massive grief, dislocation, and they learnt God really does take seriously our ways and practices. Judgment and wrath uh, are not popular topics in our society. Uh, You kind of think, Zechariah, you know, why open the book that way? This kind of, you know, call and reminder of of God's anger in the past. Political correctness, I suppose, has us in a a fear that uh, to hold an opinion equals arrogance. You know, that, that superior people don't stoop down and condemn others. They just accept everything. And yet we all know that there are some things that are wrong. There is a place for judgment and wrath. Some things should be decried. Uh, There there was the the recent trial by media of uh, the actor who used to be in Hey Dad. Uh, I'm sure you've seen mention of it. It's been alleged he was abusive to children on the set of this this popular sitcom. I've got absolutely no idea whether it's true or not. Um, It does seem it's going to be pretty hard for that guy to get a a non-prejudiced trial um, after the, the media, but... But it does highlight the fact that, yes, still as a society, we we know there are things that are wrong, that there are things that deserve judgment, that there's a a place where wrath is actually not unworthy. Anger is not unworthy, it's right. God's anger is not unworthy of him. It's not a cause for embarrassment, but for reflection and learning. So God's anger is just. He he condemns the evils of, of evil ways and evil practices. It's patient. Did you notice there that it's continually warned? And, and this itself is another warning. Just as you've returned to the land, be warned to approach it rightly so nothing goes wrong. But it's real. And it's wisdom to learn from other people's pain, isn't it? Uh, much better to do that than to go through the pain yourself. Um, A.W. Pink suggested that regularly reflecting on the wrath of God is actually good for us. Uh, he says it's good because it reminds us how God detests sin. How it, it's good because it brings about in us a true fear of God in our souls. And it's good because it draws out a fervent praise to Jesus because he saves us from the wrath to come. And Pink uh, finishes with this little thought. Our readiness or our reluctance to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of how our hearts really stand affected towards him. You know, to put it another way, Our willingness to think deeply on the wrath of God, his anger at sin, is a measure of whether we are spiritually in the right place, whether we are close to him or far. See, Zechariah wants 
These people, his listeners, learn from the fate of others. Don't face it all again. Yes, God, God says, I've brought you back, but you now need to return to me. They're in the right place physically, but spiritually distant. They need to learn a lesson from the past in two major ways built around that verse 3. You know, return to me and I'll return to you. They needed to learn what it was to return. And that's what we need to do as well, isn't it? We need, we need to heed that demand to return. It's what they need to do, it's what we need to do. You know, it's not enough for them physically to be okay. You know, returning is that sense or repenting that sense of, of wholeheartedly recommitting to God uh, you know, his challenge is, is for them to actually genuinely deal with the sin that distances them from God, that spiritual distance, and, and go back and take costly obedience seriously. Because if they don't, God will deal with them as seriously as he did with their fathers. I think what's interesting in Zechariah's opening is his quietness over their particular sin. Now, prophets are, are never shy in calling spades a spade. Uh, later in the book, we will get some more specifics of, uh, of their sin. But at this point, he keeps it vague. And what it does is it prevents Judah from comparing their behaviour to their fathers and finding a way out, a loophole. You know, the, the question thrown to them is, return to me, and there's no space to play a game of, oh, what are you saying that to me, Lord? They, they did much worse things. You know, like, list their sins, list mine, I'm doing all right. Closer than they are. No, no. Whatever it is that is keeping them from wholehearted dedication from God is as bad as what their forefathers have done. It's lumped in the same group in Zechariah's thinking and teaching. We naturally have a a kind of skill of distancing ourselves from from other people's sin and comparing against it to make ourselves look good. What I did isn't quite as bad as what they did. And we do it with the, the sins of previous generations as well. You know, we, we, we take that easy option that, you know, the pa- all my problems, that's, you know, bad parenting, mother's to blame, father's to blame, you know. You know, we, we know, you know, as a society, we know European settlers came to a country and they certainly advanced at the expense of the Aboriginal locals. And we might rightly have grasped that an apology is necessary, but we're so slow to see that that means a repayment of any form because... You know, after all, that, that was you know, different times, different circumstances. It, it wasn't me directly who did any of those kind of things. And in fact, you know, we can think, you know, my family only came here last generation. So it's really not me, or even though they came to enjoy benefits won at a cost, bought at a price of injustice. You know, all those kind of arguments that the people of Zechariah's time could have used. Yeah, you know, oh, we didn't do those things that caused, saw us going to exile. No, no, but your sin is just the same and there's no skirting around it. You must repent, you must return, you must come back to me. Zechariah is not saying every sin is identical, but he does alert us to just how similar our sin is to others. And it's an unsafe game to try and dodge the challenge by playing games of sin comparison. And just as dangerous is, is to ignore God's call to return. If you're hearing him say that today, return, and, and if you're content to just dust around the edges of your sin. You know, God wants a wholehearted return. Um, I, I read an article this week uh, on Blickisdorp. You're supposed to say that with an Afrikaans accent. You can you know, put one in later. Uh, it's this tin can town in South Africa. Um, you would have known that uh, the World Cup is coming to South Africa very soon and so they're putting in a concerted effort to at least clean up the image. 
Uh, and so they're getting all the homeless and putting them into places like Blickersdorp. Um, unofficially, it's said that that can accommodate 650 people. Uh, the official number is 1,667. You know it's official because it's got like a, a not a round but a seven thrown at the end. Um, either way, there are about 15,000 people struggling to live there and they are not free to leave. Now, that's not dealing with the problem. It's hiding it so that everyone else can't see it. And it's what we become so adept at with our sin, isn't it? Not dealing with it, but hiding it. Keeping at points distance. To quote A.W. Pink again, We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it, but the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely we are to realise its heinousness. Return to me, says the Lord Almighty. And the challenge gets even sharper when when you realise what uh, Zechariah's contemporary Haggai was, was saying about their sin. So Haggai, the, the convenient bit is, normally you wouldn't be able to find Haggai in your Bible, but if you've got it open, it's just the page before. It's fantastic, isn't it? Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah. Um, he, he, within, two, you know, within two months of the passage we're looking at Zechariah, Haggai uh, got to speak to the people as well what the Lord had to say. Um, Haggai 1 verse 2, it's up on your screen as well if you didn't manage to turn your page. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never enough. You drink, never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm. You, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber, build a house that I might take pleasure in it and be on it. So the insight Haggai gives us to the same people Zechariah is speaking to is that it's not gross idolatry their problem. It's the fact that they just live normal lives where they're only concerned for themselves rather than interest in the priorities of God's kingdom. Now, they're in, they're in much tougher times than you know, our recent global financial crisis. And yet still God is saying, you need to return, you need to stop obsessing with the, the house redecorations, the house panelling, just doing the finishing touches on your home. You need to start caring about the rebuilding of the temple. That is, you need to start thinking about how you honour me and how you make it possible for others to come back to me. You need to get your priorities back on the kingdom rather than just your own little world. So they were physically being provided for. They were physically in the right place. But God's priorities were, were a second thought to them. You know, physically, we, we are well, well placed. You know, we, we can't draw a direct line from, from Judah two and a half thousand years ago to, to Sydney here. But we who, who physically appear close to him at church, you know, do we need to spiritually return? As a community, are we, are we concerned for the priorities of making God's kingdom known? Judah's problem is not so much what they were doing, but what they weren't doing. Now, someone shared with me a challenge they'd received from a fellow Christian. Um, this person said to them that if you hadn't shared about Jesus with at least one person in a week, you weren't trying. Uh, it's the same guy who asked him when they first met whether he was a Christian because they'd spent the afternoon together and uh, he'd not mentioned Jesus. And uh, this guy said to him, well, normally if you're passionate about something, you end up talking about it. 
Now, my jury's still slightly out about the style of this guy's challenge. He's clearly not backward in coming forward. Uh, but, you know, in light of what Zechariah is saying here and his call to his people to come back and share his priorities, to return fully, uh, it had me thinking. Now, to be as passionate about the priorities of building God's kingdom as I am about securing the necessities of my life. You know, to repent not just of the sins of commission, the things we do, but the sins of omission, the things we don't do. To return, not just to be saved, but, but to be so spiritually close to God that the things that warm his heart warm ours also, that the things that he has driven to passion for drive us as well. See, it's a strong demand God is saying to these people, return to me wholeheartedly, completely. But it does come with a comfort. You know, take comfort in the promise of the Lord. If we return to him, he will return to us. You know, God might look at the heinousness of our sin, but he always welcomes sinners back into his company. And we're going to hear lots more about that in the weeks to come in Zechariah, so I'm not going to say much about it now. But Judah, should they return, the blessings they long for will be fulfilled because that's God's deep passion, to delight over returning sinners and fully embrace them. That's that story we had read from Luke 15, those couple of stories, the delight in heaven over the sinner who comes back. Uh, It's the pattern of Jesus' life. Do you remember how often he ate with sinful people, people no one else would eat with? It's Christ's words from the cross that we remembered last Friday, inviting a thief to share his paradise. It's the picture we have of heaven, isn't it? Where thieves and murderers and adulterers who choose to return uh, get to share a meal with the Lord Jesus himself forever. Now, irrelevant of your sin, if you return, God promises to return to you. Bill Moyers made a documentary based on the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, It it kind of went around focused on different people and their experience of grace, but also their their kind of reflections and delight in that song. Uh, One section follows Johnny Cash, the the late man in black, uh, at a concert in maximum security prison, as he often played at. Uh, Cash asked the inmates what the song meant to them in conversation after the gig. Uh, One man who was there serving time for attempted murder replied, I've been a deacon, a churchman, but I never knew grace was until I ended up in a place like this. That's That's the beauty of an answer from a man who kind of stretched the length of wandering from God, but he understood and could savour those words, return to me and I'll return to you. Sure, he'd been a deacon, he'd been a churchman, Uh, But there, in prison, he could appreciate what those promises meant. No matter how far away, return to me and I'll return to you. You Perhaps you've been physically in a good place for a while, but absent from God in spirit, or at least keeping some areas distant. Maybe you've seen your sin is not that bad. Maybe, Maybe his passions have stopped stirring your spirit. We need to learn from our spiritual forefathers. Return to me and I'll return to you. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that no matter how far uh, we wander, no matter how great and deep our sin, you call us to return to you. Father, we thank you for the warning we receive of seeing others judged for their sin, that we may not face it ourselves. And we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus who bore our sin, that we might have life and forgiveness. In his name we pray. Amen.